Noise International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, President Joe Biden announces another security package for Ukraine amid a fresh onslaught by Russia on its eastern flank. We don't know how long this war will last, but as we approach the two-month mark, here's what we do know. Putin has failed to achieve his grand ambitions on the battlefield. After weeks of shelling Kiev, Kiev still stands. Tensions rise between Israel and Russia over a contested church property in Jerusalem's old city. The serene atmosphere in the Russian Orthodox Alexander Nevsky Church belies the fact that the religious site has become a flashpoint in the growing diplomatic disputes between Moscow and Jerusalem. And Pakistan's prime minister orders extra security for his predecessor in the wake of emerging threats. We'll have those stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. President Joe Biden announced an additional $800 million security assistance package for Ukraine on Thursday to further shore up support for the embattled nation as it faces a fresh onslaught by Russia on its eastern flank. Addressing Americans from the Roosevelt Room in the White House, Biden pledged to send dozens of howitzers, 144,000 rounds of ammunition, and tactical drones as he called on Congress for supplemental funding to provide additional aid for Kyiv. He also announced a ban on Russian affiliated ships from American ports, the latest step to pressure Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. U.S. President Joe Biden. This package includes heavy artillery weapons, dozens of howitzers, and 144,000 rounds of ammunition to go with those howitzers. It also includes more tactical drones. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. We've sent thousands of anti-armor and anti-missile helicopters, drones, grenade launchers, machine guns, rifles, radar systems. More than 50 million rounds of ammunition had already been sent. The United States alone has provided 10 anti-armor systems for every one Russian tank that's in Ukraine, a 10 to 1 ratio. We're sharing and will continue to share significant timely intelligence with Ukraine to help defend them against Russian aggression. To modernize Teddy Roosevelt's famous advice, sometimes we will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. We're not sitting on the funding that Congress has provided for Ukraine. We're sending it directly to the front lines of freedom. The fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach you got to admit, you have, must be amazed at the courage of this country, the resolve that they're showing, not just their military, but the average citizen, men and women, young men, young women as well. At the sustained and coordinated support of the international community, led and facilitated by the United States, is a significant reason why Ukraine is able to stop Russia from taking over their country thus far. Today, I'm announcing that the United States will ban Russian-affiliated ships from our ports, as they did in Europe. That means no ship that sails under the Russian flag or that is owned or operated by a Russian interest will be allowed to dock in the United States port or access our shores. None. This is yet another critical step we're taking in concert with our partners in the European Union, United Kingdom, Canada, and further to deny Russia the benefits of international economic system that they so enjoyed in the past. We don't know how long this war will last, but as we approach the two-month mark, here's what we do know. Putin has failed to achieve his grand ambitions on the battlefield. After weeks of shelling Kyiv, Kyiv still stands. That's U.S. President Joe Biden. Denmark's Prime Minister Mitch Fredriksson on Thursday said her country will give additional military aid worth $90 million to Ukraine and support for the sanctions against Russia. Speaking at a briefing during a visit to Kyiv, she said Denmark's total military assistance amounted to around $146 million. This, as Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky said on Thursday, 
that around 120,000 civilians are blocked from leaving the besieged city of Mariupol by Russian forces. Responding to remarks by Russia's defense minister Sergei Shoigu that his forces control most of Mariupol, Zelensky said that Ukrainian troops still remain in a part of it. The remainder of Ukrainian troops in Mariupol are now holed up in the Azotel steel plant from where they are resisting the Russia's siege. Explosions, death, displacement and fear. The Russian invasion of Ukraine will have long-term consequences for Ukrainians and especially for the many children that have been uprooted from their homes and their families had to flee the fighting. VOA's Celia Mendoza has more from a refugee center in Poland. Innocent Ukrainian children play in refugee centers far from home. At a tender age, they have heard and felt the sounds of a war they can't yet understand. Uprooted from their homes, these children feel safe in Poland. Jon Masim, who is from Odessa, is aware of why they had to flee. On February 24th, I heard three explosions and we had an air alarm, and then the normal one. After a week, two or three, they started bombing again. It's been about three days, two, I don't know. Then we all stocked up on food and water. As children arrive at the Polish border, some are carrying emotional scars over what they have seen and lived through. While it might be difficult for younger children to express themselves, some wishfully share their loss. Some look forward to a new future in another country. Others yearn to return home. Seemingly wise beyond his years, Maxim has developed a sense of patriotism caused by the Russian invasion. I want to be a military man because I want to protect our land. The destruction and ordeal that children like Maxim have endured, along with their parents, are likely to shape their lives forever. Celia Mendoza, VOA News, Shemesh, Poland. Tensions between Jerusalem and Moscow are rising over the contested Alexander Nevsky Russian church property in Jerusalem's old city. Russian President Vladimir Putin recently sent a personal letter to Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett demanding Israel immediately hand over control of the church. The issue is one of the latest flashpoints in increasingly contentious relations between the two countries during the Russian war against Ukraine. Linda Granstein and Ricky Rosen reports from Jerusalem. The serene atmosphere in the Russian Orthodox Alexander Nevsky Church in Jerusalem's old city belies the fact that the religious site has become a flashpoint in the growing diplomatic disputes between Moscow and Jerusalem. Sarah Feinberg is a Russian Middle East policy analyst at Tel Aviv University. The tension that we've seen uh, unfolding uh, surrounding the Alexander Courtyard in the old city of Jerusalem, between Moscow and Jerusalem, is a diplomatic crisis on which it is not sure at this very point as we speak if it is a minor diplomatic crisis meant to create a pressure, a leverage point against Jerusalem, or a game changer in the relationship between Moscow and Israel. Israel has tried to remain neutral from the beginning of the Ukraine war. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett even visited Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. But recently, Israeli officials have been more outspoken against Russian aggression, voting to condemn Russia at the United Nations. 
As part of its counterattack, Russia sent Putin aide and former Prime Minister Sergei Stepashin to deliver a letter from Putin to Bennett demanding the immediate transfer of the Alexander Nevsky church compound. Stepashin accused Israel of ignoring Russia's proven claims to the property and playing ping-pong with both sides because of the Ukraine conflict. Israel agreed to transfer ownership of the Nevsky Church to Russia in 2020 as part of a deal by former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the release of an Israeli imprisoned in Moscow on drug charges. Israeli courts blocked the move, though, demanding that the complicated political and legal situation in Jerusalem's old city be resolved by a special governmental committee. Linda Gradstein for VOA News. Jerusalem. Pakistan Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has ordered extra security for his predecessor Imran Khan in the wake of security threats. This as Khan held another mega rally in second largest city of Lahore to protest his removal by parliament. Khan vowed in his words, quote, not to accept a government of foreign slaves, unquote, and warned that he will announce a further course of action against the government. For more, I spoke with VOA's Ayaz Gaw. Well, it seems that every time former Prime Minister Imran Khan is holding these rallies, they're becoming larger and larger in size because this one seems to be much bigger than what we saw in Karachi and in Peshawar before that. So, and that shows that he is so far succeeding in building this momentum of mass pressure on the new government in order to press them to hold snap elections. And there were reports that the new prime minister ordered extra security for his predecessor. What prompted that? How serious is the security threat against former prime minister Imran Khan? According to government officials, uh, there were reports of some kind of subversive activities during this rally in Lahore. So that report actually prompted the prime minister to enhance security measures for this rally and the former prime minister. But political tradition in Pakistan that every time a political rival, especially the opposition leaders, when they hold rallies, government of the time issues these kind of advisories to try to deter people from attending such rallies and discourage them creating this fear. So as far as security was concerned today, there was not enough number of people or police personnel because this is a huge crowd and it's not possible to provide security. When you have security personnel or police personnel in thousands, you're dealing with a rally of tens of thousands of people. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan is still insisting there was some kind of conspiracy that led to his ouster. And he made a particular statement that he will announce a further course of action against this government. What kind of an action? What are his options? Holding these rallies, even if they become bigger and bigger by the day, will not bring him the meeting of his demand of snap elections because it's not bothering the government of the time and they're really not keen to hold elections. But what Imran Khan is threatening, he has been saying that because... There is a foreign conspiracy behind the imposition of this new government. So he is condemning this new government as an imported government, which he says is unacceptable to his party and that he was dislodged unconstitutionally and illegally. So he's trying to convince people that they need to rally behind him, not only his party, but the Pakistani public. They need to rally behind him so that they force the government to hold elections. But uh, so far, uh, because he's holding these rallies peacefully and he's not issued any threat of 
violence. It doesn't seem that the government is bothered about it. But what he said today at the rally in Lahore was significant. And that was that he urged the people to be prepared for a call that he did not say when exactly will happen, but that people should be prepared for a similar rally in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. Now, if that happens, Islamabad is a small city compared to Lahore and Karachi. And if these kind of people in big numbers, if they show up, converge on Islamabad, you know, it's definitely going to put pressure on the government and create problems. As we always, Ayaz Gao speaking with me from Islamabad. In other news, the Arab League called on Israel on Thursday to end Jewish prayers inside the compound of Islam's third holiest shrine in East Jerusalem, warning it was a flagrant affront to Muslims' feelings that could trigger wider conflict. They said why Israel was restricting the rights of worship of Muslims in Jerusalem's whole city, ultra-nationalist Jews under police protection were being allowed at the height of the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan to enter the Al-As Mosque compound. Israeli leaders have said they are ensuring freedom of worship for all religion in Jerusalem. The Al-Aqsa Mosque area is the most sensitive site in a generation-old conflict. Tensions this year have been heightened in part by Ramadan coinciding with the Jewish celebration of Passover. Israel regards the whole of Jerusalem as its capital and the center of the Jewish faith. It annexes Jerusalem, which includes the whole city after a 1967 conflict in a move that has not won international recognition. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedu in Washington. Moktada Asada, a Shia cleric who won 73 out of the 325 seats in a parliamentary election in Iraq, is promising major change. He wants to break away from the political tradition of forming a national unity government after each election that includes all parties representing Iraq's sects, ethnicities, and religions. This type of political arrangement is perceived as one of the many causes of corruption and social division in Iraq. Ishmael al-Sadani, former Iraqi military attaché in Washington, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shinawi chances of success in reforming the political system in Iraq. Well, it's very, very challenging to make a significant shift in the political system in Iraq. It becomes norm in political life to constitute the government based on ethnic and sectarian coda and diminishing the political opposition role in the parliament. In fact, the electoral system and the constitutions are designed to try distributing the high-ranking positions among the main three components that are Shia, Sunni, and Kurds. That's why we witness the political tell me these days all blocks would like to participate in the government formation and no party wants to accept a position in the parliament even the coalition that mr Sadr has established are formed from the aforementioned parties so sunnis will keep the parliament spokesperson position Kurds will retain the president while Shia will be getting the prime minister position. If this coalition would be able to pass, 
the votes for, to form the government, there is only one thing will be changed, that the role of opposition will be emerged. I doubt that the same political parties that ruled Iraq in the past 19 years are fit to make the required reform, including Mr. Sadr. Sadr wants to form a majority government that can begin implementing desperately needed reforms, beginning with controlling the unruly militias and fighting corruption. He also aims to curb foreign influence from countries like Iran and make sure Iraq remains neutral regarding divisive regional issues. Will he succeed? Hypothetically, uh, if the coalition that Mr. Sadr and other parties could complete the quorum and settle the stalemate and go ahead and forming the national majority government, I'm skeptic as well. He could tackle and address these chronic issues, especially those are related to disarm the unruly armed groups or the foreign influences. If he and his coalition want to start the real reformation, they should start with building the national institutions capabilities based on the national interest. This is the ideal approach. This requires will and belief in the integrity of Iraq as one nation. But the parties that are under the coalition umbrella do not have the same vision for Iraq. For instance, Kurdistan Democratic Party is one of the coalition components do not believe in the integrity of Iraq as a one country. They have organized a referendum to declare independence a few years ago. Mr. Sadr himself supervises a militia, and they, these are paradoxes to the objectives that his coalition wants to tackle. So if they want to cure all these issues, they have to start within themselves to show the others they are willing to fight any kind of arm of out of control the state and the foreign influence that harms Iraq integrity and sovereignty. Thus, Ishmael al-Sadani from Iraqi military attaché in Washington, speaking with my colleague Mohammed al-Shanawi. There's only about two weeks left before the Philippines national elections and observers are asking several questions. Will the son of the late dictator Marcus Jr. be the next president? And what do surveys say about Sarah Duterte, the daughter of current president Rodrigo Duterte, who implemented the controversial war on drugs in the country? Reporter Stanley Bernafe Duterte has more from Manila. In less than 20 days, the Philippines will have another leader. Decades after dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was ousted in a popular uprising that laid bare the brutality and sweeping corruption of his regime, his son is poised to revive the family's political fortunes in next month's presidential elections. Recent surveys made by Publicus Asia and Okta Research show that presidential candidate Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. is in the lead. He is the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr., who ruled during 1970s and 92-year-old Imelda Marcos, the former first lady, who is famous for her lavish shoe collection, continues to enjoy her freedom three years into her conviction for graft. In the Publicus Asia poll in the capital Metro Manila, Marcos Jr. gained 51.6% of 1,625 respondents in the poll firm's April 8-13 to 13 survey. Marcos Jr. led surveys even though he did not attend any formal debates, interviews and forums sponsored by the Commission on Elections and mainstream media outfits except the TV channel owned by controversial spiritual leader Apollo Kiboloy. He is wanted by the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation 
investigation for his sex trafficking issues in the U.S. Kiboloy is the spiritual advisor of President Rodrigo Duterte. Marcos Jr. attended the TV channel's presidential forum that a majority of presidential candidates failed to attend. Marcos Jr. has not presented formal plans for the country since the first day of campaign, but he is for quote-unquote unity. He's been heavily criticized for having no official college degree and tax evasion cases. On the other hand, Philippines Vice President Lenny Robredo came in second with 24.3%, followed by Manila Mayor and actor Isko Moreno Domagoso with 9.8%, followed by lawmaker Senator Panfilo Lacson with 4.2%. World Vaccine Champion and Senator Manny Pacquiao made it to top five with 1.8%. Lawyer Lenny Robredo explained all of her platforms and plans during presidential debates and made decisions on foreign affairs and international relations. She also made programs for different communities as a vice president, touching the lives of many, but still landed in the number two spot. For the post of Vice President, Sara Duterte Carpio led the field with 51.3%. She is the daughter of incumbent President Rodrigo Duterte, who implemented a controversial war on drugs. It's the same scenario for another survey firm, Okta Research. In the Okta survey, conducted from April 2 to 6, Bongbong Marcos Jr. gained 57% of the 1,200 respondents. The rating was higher than the 55% he received in Octa's February poll. Vice President Lenny Robredo posted the biggest increase among the presidential aspirants with 22%, a 7 percentage point jump from her rating in February. Both Octa Research and Publicus Asia only have more or less 3% margin of error. But just this weekend, some presidential candidates behind Marcos and Robredo want Robredo to withdraw her candidacy to quote-unquote give way to them. The question now is, why candidates with low ratings want the number two Vice President Robredo to withdraw her candidacy and not the number one, which is Marcos? For VOA News, I'm Stanley Buena Feguete in Manila, Philippines. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com until next time i am trinidad from washington wishing you a wonderful weekend next an editorial reflecting the views of the united states government when control of Hong Kong was transferred from Britain to the People's Republic of China in 1997, the PRC agreed to govern Hong Kong under the principle of one country, two systems. According to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, for 50 years the city would enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in foreign and defense affairs, and the laws currently in force in Hong Kong would remain basically unchanged. But as the U.S. State Department's recent Hong Kong Policy Act report shows, the PRC is tightening its vice-like grip on the city as the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover to Beijing approaches. In the words of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, over the past year, the People's Republic of China has continued to dismantle Hong Kong's democratic institutions, placed unprecedented pressure on the judiciary and stifled academic, cultural and press freedoms. Hong Kong's freedoms are diminishing while the PRC tightens its rule. 
The report notes that over the past year, PRC authorities took actions that eliminated the ability of Hong Kong's pro-democracy opposition to play a meaningful role in governance. Peaceful political expression critical of Beijing with a local administration was criminalized. Sweeping changes to Hong Kong's electoral system blocked the participation of political groups not approved by Beijing and greatly diminished Hong Kong voters' ability to elect representatives of their choice. Among other acts of repression, authorities shut down two of Hong Kong's largest independent media outlets, Apple Daily and Stand News, and forced the closure of the June 4th Museum, which commemorated the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Using the 2020 national security law as a pretext, authorities filed charges against more than 160 individuals and organizations. This number includes activists and politicians detained in February 2021 for holding a primary election to elect candidates who would represent the pro-democracy camp in the Legislative Council election. Authorities also arrested and prosecuted activists for speech critical of the central or local governments or their policies, including for comments or posts on social media. Beijing will ultimately force many of the city's best and brightest to flee, tarnishing Hong Kong's reputation and weakening its competitiveness. A fully functioning civil society, rule of law, and individual liberties form the bedrock on which vibrant societies grow, declared Secretary Blinken. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 